Good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Fritz. I'm one of the pastors here along with Murray. would love to meet you um, before you leave today. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago a song that I've come across. It's an oldie but goldie, Unchained Melody. And I found a new musician that sings it very well. And it got me thinking about this passage that we're coming into this morning and next Sunday how we all have visions for our life. We all have some vision out there we're sort of striving toward, whether we admit it or not. It might just be of a pretty well-balanced family, whatever people get along, uh, a community that things go pretty good, or you know, a certain way of life, a certain standard of living, a certain look that you might have. Well, one of the visions that I would probably never admit, except on a Sunday morning to you, that I have is of me singing Unchained Melody. Let me explain this. I get in my car by myself all alone, and I put it on, and I just start belting it. And over time, I begin to think I actually sound pretty good. And I'm hitting the notes until that one high part comes, and then you're like, ah. But in your mind, you begin to think, I'm really nailing this song. And then what begins to happen in my mind, I have this vision, and it's of me and my family, everybody coming home for Christmas, and we go to some establishment where they have karaoke. And my kids don't know, well now they will, but they don't know that I've been practicing this song. And I slip in the back and I tell the guy, Unchained Melody. And then I make my way up there. And I just start singing. Like some of you can sing, not like I sing. And all of a sudden, my children are like, Dad? I didn't know Dad could sing like this. And, and, and everybody just stops what they're doing, and they're wrapped with attention, right? Everyone has a vision, whether you would admit it or not. And we're even sort of that vision is propelling us, right? We do things that associate with that vision coming true. For me, it's practicing singing that in the car. What Jesus, what God, what everything in this service that we've looked at today and heard about, it's showing us, thank God, a better and bigger vision than Fritz singing karaoke. And, and if you would admit, probably some of your visions are a lot less important than you thought they were. They're probably a lot like karaoke. Because God has a greater, greater vision. And it's that the whole world, all of His people, and really, eventually, all of creation can see His glory and be wrapped with attention and wonder at His love. His vision is that the blind could see. We're going to break up this passage into two sections. We're going to do verses 1 through 12 this week, and then we'll finish the rest next week. Chapter 9 of the Gospel of John. Please hear God's Word this morning. As He, that is Jesus, passed by, He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, 
who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Yes, children, you heard that right. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, uh, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we don't have to doctor it up. We don't have to um, try to make it uh, powerful. It already is. It is your authoritative word for us. And God, may we see the very point of it today, that you came for us, that we may see. In Christ's name, amen. So when I was in college, after a couple years of uh, getting all my basics out of the way, I realized I didn't know what I wanted to do, and so um, I was using all my scholarship. I know that's a surprise that I got scholarship, but... I was using it, and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing, so I took a break, and I did uh, what some people do in the middle of college. I think they call it something now. But my buddy and I moved to Dallas, Texas to start an acting career, because that's where you go when you want to start acting is Dallas. Uh, after a few months, I knew it wasn't going to work out, and after seven or eight months, I knew very Clearly it wasn't working, and I had made a mess of my life. I can explain some of that to you later if you want to know. But my life was in shambles. So I had a decision to make. What am I going to do at this point? I knew I could stay there and continue the shambles, or I could humble myself, pick up the phone, and call my dad. My dad had bailed me out in the past on numerous occasions, some begrudgingly, some not. But I knew that he would come. So I called him, and he said, I'll be there this weekend. And he drove his big old pickup truck and his trailer in Beverly Hills, Beverly Hillbilly-like. We came back to Brookhaven, Mississippi. Why did I call my dad? Because I knew that my dad would come. I knew that he loved me. I knew that ultimately my dad wanted me to see clearly. Where did that love come from? 
in retrospect, I know now the only thing that propelled my dad to come get me and to love me was the love of God and the grace that he was being shown by that same God. God sent my dad to bring me back because he loved me. And as we look at this text, it would be easy, we, we're going we're to look at the blind man more specifically in the reactions next week, but I, wanna, I want us to see something very important to the text and to the gospel of John this morning. That God loved us so much that he sent Jesus for us. That the intention behind Jesus coming Yes, he did the judicial work of the cross. But the intent and the heart behind that was God's love so that the blind can see. Today I want us to see that God so loved us, he sent Jesus. That you and I may be sent into the world with that love. So the first point is very simple. Jesus was sent by God. Verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. The word sent is used in this text, or in the, the Gospel of John, up to chapter 9, 20 times at least. If you back up to chapter 8, here are a couple examples. Verse 42, Jesus said, I came not of my own accord, but the Father sent me. Verse 29, who, he who sent me is with me. Verse 26, he who sent me is true. If you go forward to chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer, one of the things that Jesus prays for is unity in the church, not just in our church or our denomination, but the church across the world. And he says this, that it will bear witness that Jesus was sent by God, that the Father sent me. John wants us to see clearly that Jesus was sent by God that we may see, that God sent Jesus. We saw it when Murray preached chapter 4, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Jesus had an appointment with the Samaritan woman. He was sent by God to her. John 5, when he walked by that pool with many invalids there, he saw a man that was an invalid for 38 years, and he saw him lying there, and he said, do you want to be healed? He was sent for that man. Jesus recognizes our needs because God sent him to minister to our needs. For God so loved the world that he sent and we see that clearly illustrated in verses 1 and 2. Again, let me read that. As he passed by, Jesus saw. Don't move on from that. This is just not like a little like technical note. Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples saw something else. They saw a dilemma. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? that he was born blind. The disciples saw a great dilemma undergirded by their skewed theology. Jesus saw something else. He saw a man born 
blind. While the disciples seemed to totally forget what Jesus had already done with the invalid and many other people, the purpose of His being sent, the disciples only saw a debate, a philosophical and theological dilemma. Why was this man born blind? Because either he sinned, well, that would sort of be impossible because he was blind from birth. Well, you can actually make a case in the Old Testament that you can sin in, you know, while you're in, in the womb. Well, maybe it, was his, it had to be his parents then. His parents must have done something. Which was it? And you can see how they can debate about this on and on and on. See, this is their way of understanding sin and brokenness, and we certainly need a biblical theological understanding of those things. But they are caught in this trap of trying to figure out where it all came from and assigning blame for it. It's a judgment thing that is going on here. And so they get embroiled in a controversy, which never happens in the church. How did he get like this? He must have done something really evil. And the point, again, not that those things aren't important. There are theological categories here, biblical categories. But what Jesus sees is a man in need right in front of him. And it's as if he's saying to the disciples, that has nothing to do with it. You're wasting your energy You're trying to assign blame and you're missing the whole point. The whole point is, I came so that the blind can see. There are these great needs right in front of you. And all you can do is try to assign blame. Our cat is going blind. In fact, she is blind. She's about 17 years of age and couple months ago she has what looks like some sort of stroke and we took her to the vet and they said it could be this it could be this and and basically all we could do at that point were a bunch of diagnostics that cost a lot of money and we could open her up and we just said but but she's blind right And we could really go back and try to figure out what is going on, how did it happen. But the point is, she's blind, and right now we have to care for her as a blind cat, which means a lot of things. I want you to see that Jesus was sent to minister to your needs. And what this is saying us in this first point is no matter how you got in the situation that you are currently in, no matter how you got in the circumstances you are currently in, maybe it is a porn addiction and you're terribly ashamed of how you got there and you think you can tell it to no one Or maybe it is something else that brings you great shame. Maybe it is some other addiction. Maybe it's just your pride and your anger and you think, how could I have gotten this far? I was saved by God's grace. Jesus met me in my needs and I have fallen so far away from that. Jesus recognizes your needs. He came 
that you may see. He loaded up the truck and the trailer and he came to bring you home. You know, I thought about this as we think about this great ministry opportunity with the preschool. You know, that wasn't in Redeemer's original vision. When the elders go away and they sit down and they think through and they pray and they talk vision and what's the next couple years? And preschool is nowhere there. And then God said, here, here's a lot of needs. What are you going to do with this? And it's beautiful seeing many of you stepping up and saying, it's a little overwhelming, I'm not sure how I can help, but I think I can, I think I can do this. Because you see the need right in front of you. Jesus was sent by God for our needs so that we may see. Secondly, Jesus was sent that the works of God might be displayed. Let's revisit this dilemma because I know you want to. But the question is this, who is responsible for sin? Do we get what we deserve? And if we aren't in such bad shape as this blind man, does that mean that we've done something right? We're living right, so to speak. Verse 3, Jesus flatly rejects that thinking. Listen to what he says. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. Do you hear him? God doesn't bring suffering into your life because you've done something and he's out to get you. And if you don't have major suffering in your life, it's not because you've done something right. He rejects that thinking outright. Yes, in general, suffering is related to sin. God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this, You will die. Death will come into the whole world. And sometimes particular suffering is related to particular sin. Fritz, if you keep eating potato chips every night, you're probably going to have cholesterol issues. But that's not what he's doing here. As Jesus taught in John 5 and Luke 13 in the whole book of Job, he's saying, that's again what we said in John 5, that's not our business. It's God's business. How is Jesus teaching us to think about suffering and needs in verse 3? And the answer is very simple. Redemptively. Look at verse 3. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now take your own suffering for a minute. Because when I go through suffering, what I do is I tend to spiral. Nobody gets me. Or self-pity parties, right? Or, or, or anger or frustration, or I'll just grin and bear it. But Jesus says there's actually a better way to think about your suffering, and it's that the works of God might de- be displayed in you specifically. And that is in line with what the Bible teaches. Joseph said to his brothers who abused him and threw him in a pit and left him for dead, and he spent time in prison, I don't know that I could get over that. And he looked them in the eye and said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And it it was so good, he fed the Egyptians for seven years. In Exodus 11, God said to 
Moses, Pharaoh will not listen. Why? I have a purpose so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land. John 11, Jesus says, this illness will not lead in death. It is for the glory of God. 1 Peter 1 says this, that you and I as the church will go through various trials and it will refine our faith. It will show that our faith is actually genuine and it will result in praise when Jesus returns. In other words, God permits His children to suffer for a season in order that His work might be displayed in them. There is purpose in our trials. God does not waste our suffering. This week has been one of those weeks where you can just list the amounts of suffering. As Jake mentioned, our missionaries in Australia came back home to two-thirds of their furniture being ruined by mold. I had a pastor friend confess to me this week that he blew up in a hotel room with anger at his small children and said things that he terribly regrets. Had others confess this week that they felt like failures. Bill Trent fell and hurt his hip. Taylor's father. Jesus has a purpose for our suffering. That the works of God might be displayed. Do you think redemptively about what God might be doing in you and through you with your suffering. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that one purpose for your suffering is that you be comforted and the comfort you receive, you actually in turn comfort others. Thirdly, look at the work of God being displayed. This is really the good part. This is the beautiful. This is just the overwhelmingly glorious part of this text to me. Verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. I know you're waiting on a great explanation of this and what is going on here. I'm going to give you a couple attempts that I simply found in my study, and I think there are many, many more out there if you want to Google it later. Uh, some people think it is just a typical medicinal thing that they would have done in that time. Uh, on that note, I texted my eye doctor and said, got any thoughts on this? He said, the only one I got is uh, one time I had a World War II vet say, I don't need that laser surgery. Just get me that mud of Jesus. thought, okay, that wasn't a lot of help, but that's good. I like that quote. Um, some people think he's sort of toying with their idea of magic. You're like, okay, what's that all about? Did Jesus use magic? No. But if you go back to what God did with the Egyptians, he swallowed up their magicians. You can do this. Oh, we can do it too. You can do this, I'll do this. And at the end, they couldn't do it anymore. God was saying, I can do things that you, you can't touch, even with your best weird attempts that we don't even understand. Maybe it, I don't know. Some people think he is 
hearkening back to Genesis 2, that Jesus is the Creator. All things were created through Him, so He's taking dirt and mud. I'm not, I'm not sure about that one. It, it, it could, be, could be there. I like John Calvin's take on it. Calvin said this, the man's been blind from birth. He's in a terrible situation. Doesn't have any chance of seeing. And what does Jesus do before he heals him? Makes it worse. Adds mud to his eyes. Puts another level of difficulty. I thought, you can't get that reading a commentary. Calvin just sat there and thought about that and prayed. He was like, what? Yeah. And then he tells him this. Go and wash in the pool of scent. Notice it makes a point to tell us what it means. It was named for this because of the way the water got there. It was sent there. But Jesus is saying there's more going on here. There's, there's, I want you to go wash in the pool of scent. I want you to go wash in the pool of the sent one. Remember who I am. I've been sent by God. And the way you're going to see again, and the way anybody else is going to see again, even with the best knowledge, the best books, the best education, the best values, the best rules, the best morals, the best government, it's not enough. You must wash in the pool of scent. That's what Jesus, I think, is saying. Two things to highlight here. One is grace. It's all over this, isn't it? There are no conditions. The man doesn't ask to be healed. He doesn't even really respond except to do what Jesus says. So if he's participating, his faith is simply doing exactly what Jesus says and promises will be done. He simply receives the actions and the benefits of Jesus' power. Do you see that? If you are not a Christian, you've got to understand that is grace. God does not say, come and do this, do this, and I will love you. He says, believe in the actions of the one I sent, and my love is all over you. Be baptized in it. Washed. Whether you believe in immersion or dumping water on somebody. Be washed in it. It's grace is what it pictures. But secondly, notice it's a physically messy process, isn't it? It's a process. Murray pointed this out this week as we discussed this in our staff meeting. If you go back to chapter 5 with the invalid, it was instantaneous. Sometimes when Jesus heals, it's instantaneous. When you're made a Christian, it's instantaneous. Sometimes it involves a process of how he draws you to himself and works in your life and does this and does that. But when you are regenerated, it's instantaneous, thank God. But very often, our growth is a process. Another instance where Jesus healed a man, half healed him, and he said, do you see? And he said, well, I see men like trees walking. And he did it again to, in to emphasize to us that often it takes time to be healed, right? But notice how physical it is. As my wife said this morning, messy. God works through 
let's just say it, spit. And I don't know how much spit it took to get this stuff to like mud. That confuses me. How did, how did God part the Red Sea? Did he just zap it? No, he caused an east wind to start blowing. He took the physical elements and he split that sea. How did God feed his people? Y'all are magically just full. He gave them manna and quail. How did he strike things? He, he said, take this, take this wooden staff in your hand and use this stick. Moses sat on a rock when he interceded and his, his buddies hold, held up his arms with their physical arms, their flesh and their body. Jesus says here, take bread and wine, take these ordinary, normal elements and I will give you grace through these means. Have you ever been to an old school doctor? The old school doctors, and I, I feel for doctors today. I don't know how. Whew, I pray for our doctors regularly, and you should too, because they, it's just a, it's a lot. But back in the day, you had time, and a doctor would come in and have time to talk to you, and, and they would, you know, even if you were t complaining about something else, they would start doing things and touching things and all this stuff, and you're, you're like, and then they think, I think it's this. They didn't even do it like an x-ray. And they're right half the time. It's like, I know I'm butchering this illustration, but hang with me here. So much of the way that God ministers to us is through physical means. And you think, how could God use me? How could God use the Lails tonight and the hospitality team? I'm going to tell you what, some of the best garlic potatoes you're going to eat. Well, let's just be spiritual. Well, I'll, I'll eat more of your potatoes. See, you are the body of Christ. And I know that you're like, yeah, Fritz, but most times I, I, I just feel like mud. I don't feel very capable of ministering. I'll guarantee you every elder and deacon in this room one of the qualifications is you must say to me, I have no idea I'm going to do this. I don't think I can do this. I asked my wife and she said, I think you can, but I don't believe her. Because we feel very often like mud and saliva. And what does God do with mud and saliva? Uses them in the healing process. That's why Jesus says this, verses 4 and 5, we must do the works. He doesn't just say, I. In fact, later on, he says, I will do greater works through you when I'm gone. Meditate on that this week. He will do a greater work than a blind man receiving his sight through the church when he has ascended to the Father and sends his spirit to you. That's amazing. That means when we gather tonight, Jesus will be at work through those garlic potatoes. And he lets us be a part of that. Look at what he does with this guy in verses 8 through 12. By the way, I've jumped to the fourth point that you're doing the works of God. So don't be afraid. We still have one more point to go. 
But look what he does with this guy. This guy's clueless, isn't he? And it sort of gets worse later on. We'll see next week where he starts lecturing the religious leaders, and it's kind of glorious. But he's clueless. I, I, I don't know. I just know that guy healed me. I don't even know who he is, what he does. He's, I think he's a rabbi, a teacher, whatever. He healed me. Would you say, man, he really brought glory to God. Let's write a book of evangelism on what that guy said. No! Yes. Because God uses mud and saliva. And that means he can use you. I was telling somebody this story this week when I was, became a Christian in college. The man that God used in my life was the campus minister with Reform University Fellowship. And all campus ministries, you, you know this, having been a campus ministry, you do this thing called tabling, where you show up with like 50 other organizations, sit at a table, hey, take this, come to this. And it's like, it's exhausting, and will God ever use this? Well, this guy, when I met him, he had a big old thing, a, like a Gatorade container with Gatorade, and he was giving out free cups of Gatorade. And the problem was he forgot to bring something to stir it with. So you would walk up to the table, and he was kind of this gangly-looking guy, and he would go, hi, my name's Steve. You want a cup of Gatorade? And if you looked at his arm, it was like orange. <laughs> and then that guy started showing up and playing basketball, and I hated getting him on my team because he was terrible. And he always got on my team. I'm like, who is this guy in his 30s playing basketball with us? Ugh, leave! He wouldn't leave. And God used that piece of mud just like he uses you. But isn't that Christianity? Because what does God do? He doesn't shout from above. He comes down born. Born as a baby. Flesh and blood. God takes the dust of the earth. Maybe he spits it. I don't know how he did it. But he formed Jesus in Mary's womb through the Holy Spirit, which is better than water. And then he let him live in the flesh, just like you and I, perfect life. He's the second Adam, you know. And this first Adam messed it up. And this second Adam went to the cross for our mess up. And he went on a, on a wooden cross. Right? We sing wood and nails. Why? Because God's vision is far better than Fritzy and karaoke or all our little visions. He sends Jesus so that the blind can see. Let me just close with this. You heard this earlier, and I have to admit, been a busy couple weeks. I totally entrusted the Advent readings to others. I didn't even, I haven't even read this yet. I just heard it and I went, Jake, can I see that? Listen again to this. And maybe tonight will be a, a, a little picture of this. At this feast, God's vision, everything will finally be set right. Death won't leave empty chairs anymore. Instead, your houses will be full of laughter and joy. 
You won't need to look over your shoulder anymore. You don't need to wait for the other shoe to drop. It may feel too good to be true, but I promise it is true. You were made for this feast. Everything you long for is here. Come home. Let me pray. God, thank you for coming into this world in flesh and blood, the incarnate God for us, that we may be raised even in this life preparing for the greatest vision anyone could ever have for this world, a God-sized vision where the blind can truly see, a feast, Lord, where there will be no more death. May we sing of that and may we enjoy that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.